Good morning, good morning, Rabotai. Welcome. <clears throat> good morning, good morning, Rabotai. Welcome to Breakfast in the Class. Today's Breakfast and Class are sponsored in uh, memory of Victor's mother, Alice Franco, Alea Shalom, Lilunishmat Aliza Bat Jamile, sponsored by Alice and Victor Franco. Breakfast and uh, the class are well, as well are sponsored by Sammy Sayed, Aleva Shalom. Uh, in good morning, good morning, Rabotai. Welcome to Breakfast and the Class. Today's Breakfast and Class uh, have been sponsored by uh, Alice and Victor Franco in memory of Victor's mother, Alice Franco, Alea Shalom, Lilu Nishmat, Aliza Bat Jamile. As well, <coughs> breakfast is sponsored by Louis Nishmat Sami Sayed, Shilomo Ben Rifka Aleva Shalom, sponsored by uh, Abraham Nahamayas. As well, for Rifuash Lema, in uh, Rifuash Lema for Marco Mordechai Ben Jamile, Hashem should send them a full recovery. Yeshuot Venechamot, inshallah, Bemheravi Amenu, sponsored by Jamie Levi Sutton. My friends, we find a super interesting uh, concept that we've spoken peripherally about a couple times this week. Some of you may remember we mentioned this idea, uh, and I want to just uh, look a little bit deeper into this idea together, because I think that there's something here that is very beautiful. The Pasuk says, And on the day that I remember, and I will also remember. And the Gemara explains that what this means is that when a person uh, is punished at some stage in the week, in the year, in the decades, in the millennia that followed the, uh, the sin of the golden calf, a part of the punishment uh, that they experience is also for the punishment of the golden calf. The Torah Chaim writes something unbelievable. He says, the Gemara tells us, avon avot, that God only redeems, only uh, carries over the sin of the fathers on the children, only when the children are also doing the same sin. So as an example, you have a son who's being punished not just for his own sin, but also for the sins of his father. That only occurs, says the Gemara, only when the child is also Oseh Ma'aseh Avot, doing the same sins that his father did. Why? Because not only has he done something wrong, but he should have learned from his father. He should have seen that the deeds of his father didn't bring his father what he hoped that they would. And the lack of learning also is in and of itself something also which is negative. And therefore there's the consequences that need to be paid for that as well. So it seems, says the Torah Chaim, that if you could be paid only for the avon avot when you're carrying on in the same way as the father uh, has done, that if you're telling me that when I do a sin today on Fifth Avenue, when I'm walking uh, on Fifth Avenue, I do a sin, you're telling me I'm also getting a piece of the sin of the golden calf, it must be that I'm also uh, complicit in the sin of the golden calf. Otherwise, the sin of my forefathers would not be revisited on me and that punishment will also not be revisited upon me now as well. Now this idea is not just an idea which revolves around the concept of uh, reward and punishment, but actually it goes much deeper and it cuts uh, to a place in the human psyche that I think is very interesting. It turns out, therefore, that every sin has within it a tiny element of the sin of the golden calf. And how does that work? So Rabotai, I want to share with you an unbelievable story that was shared by the Panovitcher of Rav Kahanaman, who said to Rav Galinsky, Rav Galinsky, and he said as follows. He said when he was young, he would study in the Kolel 
of the Kodashim, where they were studying all the laws of the sacrifices of Zevachim, Menachot, Timurah, all the Masechtot that deal with how we act in the time of the Beit HaMikdash. And the head of, the, the head of this yeshiva in Kolel was whom? Was none other than the Chafetz Chaim. Well, one day, the wife of the Chafetz Chaim, uh, the Rabbanit, the Rebetzin, she was telling him, I want you to know that you see your rabbi and you think he's so special and you think he's uh, so famous and he has his life, everything's going so well for him. But you know, we had times of such great uh, lack, such great problems in our, in our history, in our marriage, in our life. We suffered so much to get here. The rabbi, the partner of Jerob, never heard of uh, anything like this. So he says, what do you mean? She said, well, when we first got married, we had a store. I would work in the store. The rabbi would work in the store for a certain amount of hours each day. But what did we make? We made very little money. And I would take the little bit of money that we scraped together, a couple of pennies, and times were really tough. We had no food. I would go down to the bakery, and for the couple pennies that I'd earned that day, he would allow me to take the crumbs from the bread that they cut, he would allow me to take the little end piece of the bread that was left over after they cut the loaf for other customers that had the money. Whatever flour was left over that hadn't been used to make the bread. And I would buy all the leftovers of that day from the bakery. I would come home, throw it in a pot. It was little scraps. But when I would boil it together, I was able to make uh, some sort of a stew or some uh, little kind of, you know, the dough would stick together, would become nourishing in the water at soup or whatever it was, I would make little things out of the, all these pieces together and that's what we would eat. Anyway, there was, uh, of course, times when things got even more difficult. The boy is sitting there looking. He can't believe this. He never heard this about the rabbi. That the rabbi, they had to go live off the scraps, off the leftovers that you could buy for a couple pennies at the end of the day in the bakery. But she's not done. She says, came the day where she ran out, there was no money in the house and there was no food. So she goes to the, to the baker and she says, listen, you know, I'm here every day. I come with a couple pennies, I buy. She says, today I didn't make anything. I don't have any money. Please, could you sell me the leftovers, the garbage? Could you sell it to me on credit? And tomorrow, when I make some money, Bezrat Hashem, I'll come and I'll pay you. Baker says, sure. So he gives her credit, two pennies, he writes it down, and he gives her the little crumbs, a little bit of flour, a half a slice of the end of a bread. She goes home. One day the Chafetz Chaim comes home from his studies, and he sees his wife is crying by the window. So he says, what's the matter? And she can't face him, she's looking out the window, she's crying. He says, what's the matter? She says, you know every day, I take the pennies I earn, I go to the baker, I buy the little scraps, whatever's left over. He says, yes, of course, it's fine, it's great, I, I'm, uh, I love it, it gives me the power to study, to learn, to grow. She says, of course, of course. She says, but then I ran out of money, I didn't have anything left. So I went and I asked him and he gave it to us on credit. Okay, so I went on credit, two days, three days on credit. I got there today, and the baker said, I'm sorry, until you bring the money, I'm not giving you the crumbs. I'm not giving you this, the extra flour. I'm not giving you the last slice of uh, crusty bread. So I have nothing to eat. I have nothing to serve you. 
I know you study all day, you work so hard. She says for myself, I'm okay. I'm not so hungry. I'm sure she was. But she says, how could you study? How could you learn? How could you grow to be the Talmud Chakam that you could be if I can't give you any food for nourishment? The Chafetz Chaim sees his wife. He sees she's suffering. She's in pain. And he bangs on the table. And he says, Gira be'enecha ha-satan. He quotes the Gemara in Kiddushin. He said, an arrow in your eye, O Satan, O Yetzerhara. An arrow in your eye. A term indicating that he's not going to be beat. And he says, what you think? Because I don't have any food. You're going to stop me from learning Torah. You're going to stop us from growing. You're going to stop us from developing, from becoming Sadiqim, Tzidkaniyot. I'll starve and I'll learn. Nothing you do is going to stop me. The Ramanit says to the young Panovich Rebbe to Rav Kahneman, she says, and I went to the bakery the next morning. And the baker suddenly had changed his mind. Happy to continue the credit until I was able, Baruch Hashem, after a little while to pay off the debt. And now here we are, we are where we are. But you should just know the times of difficulty went through to get to this place for your rabbi to be the person that he is, to make the impact that he has. She smiled and said, I know why the baker gave us credit and changed his mind. Because once my husband said, I'll starve and I'll learn, what point? was there for this satan to get in our way anymore. So he left us alone. And when he left us alone, the baker gave us what we needed. There was no point. My friends, there's something very beautiful here. The Panavetcharav said afterwards, he says, you and I, what would our eyes have been on? Our eyes would have been on the bread, on the crumbs, on the baker. We would have figured out how to talk to the baker. We would have figured out a little bit. This is what would have caught our attention. But someone like the Chafetz Chaim didn't lose his focus. He understood that if he was doing the right thing and something was getting in his way, it could be none other than the Yetzirah, it could be none other than the Satan, it could be nothing else but a test. A nisayon. And when you look the Nisayon in the eye and you tell it, I see you, I know what you are, I'm not bending, I'm not breaking, then the test crumbles before you because it has lost its point. There's no reason for it to continue anymore. I see you. El Chachamim tell us that when the Jewish people, when they worshiped the golden calf, it was a terrible thing. And everyone asks, how could it be? I get this question every year. How could the Jewish people have done this? After everything that they saw, after everything they went through, how could they have done this? But the Sepharim also paint a little bit of a different picture. Yes, they saw miracles, but they were the sworn enemy of the Egyptian people. They're now in the middle of the desert, they can't survive there. 
To go back to Egypt not, is not an option. To go forward to Israel, they know that every nation in Israel has their swords drawn waiting to go to battle with them. Are they ready to go forward? Are they ready to go back? What are they going to do? Okay, you know what? The answer is, whatever Moshe Rabbeinu tells us to do, he communicates to us what God wants from us. And if God tells us to go right, we go right. God tells us to go left, we go left. No problem. Recognize this. God did not yet speak to the Jewish people. God had not guided the Jewish people personally, so to speak, at this stage. Everything that they had had, the person that had saved them, the go-between was Moshe Rabbeinu. So here they are, and then all of a sudden, they see the bed of Moshe Rabbeinu floating in the sky. The Chachamim explained to us that the Yetzirah was so terrified of what the Jewish people were going to achieve with the Torah that he pretended and showed them as if the coffin of Moshe Rabbeinu was floating in the heavens. He went up to the heavens and now he's gone. You lost him. The Jewish people were lost. They didn't know where to go. They didn't know what to do. All of a sudden, a bunch of people start making noise. They tell them, look, there's an egg. Let's follow that. They thought, oh, these are, no, that's your God. This is the one. This is the new Shaliyah. They didn't know. They found it. In a moment of confusion, they lost out. But their mistake was that they were looking at the coffin and they were looking at this scenario and they were looking at the desert and they looked at Egypt and they looked at Israel but their eyes should have only been on one thing like it says by the Kiddushah when a person says Kadosh, Kadosh, Kadosh in the Amidah you're supposed to at least conceptually raise your eyes so to speak and look at the heavens and the Zohar writes that at that time when the Jewish people are saying Kadosh, Kadosh, Kadosh God says when they say kadosh and they look up and we are looking eye to eye. When you've seen that everything that stands in front of you falls in front of God, then the point is not at that moment to wonder what is the cure for this disease? Which vaccine is going to solve this problem? It's not doing that. That's not what's happening here. What's happening here, my friends, is that God is willing a test to stand before us, to test our measure, to test our metal. And what makes a test go away is when the test is no longer relevant. I want you to imagine as an example, an exam that's being given in this school. Anyway, very difficult exam. They pass out the exam papers and they're about to start the test. All of a sudden, someone uh, phone calls uh, the teacher. Teacher picks up the phone. Uh-huh. Yes, I understand. Okay. I hear you. Okay. Hold on one second. Calls the principal. Principal, I just received a phone call. I need to speak to you. Mm, okay, yes, right outside. Yes. Everyone's waiting to take the test. They have their pens. The principal walks in, talks to the teacher for two seconds, stands in front of the class and says as follows. Children, I just got very disturbing news. I just found out that this test which we're giving you now, everyone knew that this test is a difficult test covering a lot of difficult material. We just found out that someone in this class actually took the answer key to the test. And not only that, we just found out, and in my office we just checked it, we saw that the video camera shows 
that that answer key was given to every single person in this class. Every one of you has seen the answers to this test. You all have the answers. So today's test is canceled. Would you for a minute imagine that after knowing that they all had the answers to the test, that the principal would carry on and give a test that they already had the answers to? No, pointless. My friends, everything difficult that comes in this world, we believe that Borei Olam is not only good, but completely good. Hatob. That means that every test that comes to us in this world, every challenge, it must be because it's there to challenge us and to test us and to see how we react. But if we recognize it as a test and we commit to acting and reacting in the way that we're supposed to, we already have the answers. What possible reason could there be for the test to continue as planned? And the test dissolves. Powerful. Rabotai, <clears throat> I think that's what it means when it says that when a person does an avon, they make a mistake, they're punished for that sin, but also punished a little bit for the sin of the golden calf. Because as we said from the words of the Torah Chaim before, that the only time you can be punished for the sins of the fathers is when you're carrying the same sin. Their mistake at that time was in only one thing, was in looking at something and not seeing that that was the Satan, that that was the Yetzirah. Recognize these opportunities. Recognize these challenges and understand that it's not that person, it's not that money, it's not that traffic. The only thing that's here, when it's in the way of me doing the right thing, when I'm trying to do the right thing, I'm trying to be good if I'm doing the wrong thing, understand that it's a corrective measure. I need to change. But when I'm doing the right thing, this is something trying to get in my way. And if I double down and look it in the eyes and recognize what it is, the very next day I'll get credit from the baker. I just got a phone call this morning. This afternoon, excuse me. And in this phone call, a person called me up and he said, I want to tell you a story. A long time ago, 20 years ago, I had an a interaction with a certain man that I was putting up some equipment on his property. And when I put up this equipment on his property, he wasn't, he wasn't so happy about it. I explained to him, look, you know, the equipment is servicing the people in the building. He wasn't so happy about it. He said, you know what? I don't want to deal with this. You deal with my son-in-law. I think you have to pay. You should pay for my property. Anyway, he was upset. Okay. Beautiful. They work it out. You know, conversation. You owe me money. You don't owe me money. Okay, you talk to my son-in-law. Go figure it out. I don't know, bed, dean, court, whatever. But uh, this happens, like they say in Hebrew, ma'asim b'cholio happens every day. Rabutai, 20 years later, the man is running a minyan and in walks an elderly man. And the man is saying, Kaddish. And by the end of the prayers, as soon as he walks in, the man recognizes him. He remembers 20 years ago. He thinks to himself, you know what? 
Okay, nice to see the guy who had a, a machlok with him once, but you know what? Nothing that wasn't a problem, wasn't an issue, you know? This, take you, you know, say to Kadit, all you need to do is treating him exactly like you would anybody else. <laughs> the end of the prayers, the man comes up to him and says, You know, chats a little bit. He says, But you know, I just wanted to say, I want to apologize. 20 years ago, there was an issue. I said to you, You should pay. I told you to speak to my son in law. I just want to apologize if I upset you, if you felt I was too harsh. My friends, I want to share with you something amazing about this. It is 20 years since a business interaction has happened. But for all intents and purposes, it's not a fiery machloket. No one is trying to defame the other person. No one's trying to make the other guy bankrupt. It's just a regular business deal. But 20 years later, both of them remembered. And 20 years later, one of them felt, you know what, maybe I went a little too far. Excuse me, I'm sorry. What a beautiful thing, Mika Amcha Yisrael. To remember that somebody did something to you and not be upset. To remember that you did something to somebody that he even wasn't even upset about, had no reason to be upset about. But to remember enough to say sorry. And to recognize that that whole occurrence only happened to test you to see how would you deal with such a scenario. You know, they say in betting and in investing, there's some things which are a short investment and some which are a medium and some which are a long-term investment. Sometimes the Yetzirah puts like little banana peels and he wants you to slip here right now. And sometimes it's a very elaborate game. And the Yetzirah waits and he holds his cards and his chips for 20 years. And 20 years later, the Yetzirah is watching, hoping that this guy is going to walk in to say Kaddish and the other man is not going to tell him, you know, where to sit. Not going to give him a Sidur. Not going to tell, you know, tell him he's not welcome. 20 years he waits for this guy to not bring up the case and not say he's sorry. And both Jews act exactly as they are supposed to. And the Yetzirah, crestfallen, crawls back to the hole from which he came. In Shamaim, they rejoiced today to see the long game of the Yetzirah fail. Ah, Yabai. My friends, this happens each and every day. Your wife says something a little too sharp for you, you don't like it. It's not your wife. Yes, Sahara riled her up, made sure the kids, you know, were extra kvetchy today, made sure that you'd come back with this bit of news that's going to upset her right after she sent off the last kid to school. You walk in, you're like, oh, we can't go to this place anymore for vacation. She says, why? Ugh, again? She says something. But the Yetzirah orchestrated that those two events should happen one next to each other so that there would be an opportunity for one of you to lose your cool, to say something you don't mean. When you look at that moment, 
and you see that challenge, you can smile and say, I got to, I get it, I got to do it. Uh, uh. My friends, you know, there's something very special that a lot of friends do to one another. They play pranks. And in the prank, they tell the guy, oh, you got this bill for $5,000. Or they play a prank, they move the guy's car somewhere else, right? Guy comes out, he can't find his car. Now, you know what's funny? If it's the first time someone's playing a prank on you and you walk outside, your car's gone, you're like, somebody stole my car. But what happens if you walk outside every day and every day your car's missing? Eventually, your friend turning up with the keys, ah, prank. Eventually, you don't buy it anymore, right? Right? I've seen this trick. I know it. Right? One time, you owe this money. Oh, it's a fake ticket. You don't owe the money. Prank, 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 prank. Eventually, you recognize it. You're not falling for the prank anymore. I want to ask my friends, when is it going to be enough? When will we have seen the Yeshara's tricks enough that when he pulls out the coffin flying in the sky, we're like, ha, ha, ha. Nope. When is he going to try and get us angry? And instead of us thinking, it's my wife, it's my coworker, it's my boss, it's my friend, I'm going to say, it's none of them. It's you. I see you. I know you. This is your signature all over it. When? When will we have seen enough to not get pranked? Baruch Adonai Le'olam. Amen ve'amen.